Maybe I'm in love with you I say maybe Maybe I'm in love with you You put your arms around me I'm in love with you You say that you believe me That our love is true I say maybe Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM and Arbor Today. Michael Farrow is here in the office. Oh, in the office. <laughs> um, no, it's more fun than that. In the studio. Um, and Steph is with us behind the glass. Michael, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> Not to an office, right? right, right. Did I say oh, that? Yeah. I think it's because I've been reading Title 13, your oh. debut novel. And I'm thinking about... Um, the office a bit, the, the government workers. Oh, uh, yeah. You don't want to get stuck in that office. It <laughs> seems a bit brutal, but we'll get to that. We'll mm-hmm. get to that. Um, uh, before we do, I'll, I'll just read your bio from the back of the debut novel, um, Title 13. Michael A. Farrow's fiction and essays have appeared in numerous journals in both print and online. He won the Jim Cash Creative Writing Award for fiction and has received an honorable mention from Glimmer Train for their New Writers Award. Born and bred in Detroit, Michael has lived, worked, and written throughout the Midwest. He currently resides in Ypsilanti. Mm-hmm. Um, Title 13 is his first novel. Um, and Check out michaelfarrow.com. Um, so that's Michael A. Farrow, um, F-E-R-R-O.com to learn more. And we'll talk about the website later because it's it's a pretty impressive website. <laughs> oh, um, well. You know, it's built out. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like a picture of you, a picture of the book cover. Yeah. <laughs> um, but thanks. Thanks so much for being oh, here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I love the show. Oh, well, well, the show loves you back. Um, <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's start with um, maybe a, a a question about like your your writing life. Like, how when did you decide or know you were a writer? Oh, probably about a week ago. No, I, <laughs> I would say uh, in high school uh, was when I really started to get into writing. I think at first I was mostly into uh, humor writing and satire. I had written for the uh, our high school newspaper. And um, we had a, a section in the back of the newspaper that was um, just called the humor section or something. And uh, so we wrote a lot of kind of like onion style satire. And uh, I, one of the things that I loved doing was, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you know the uh, Jack Handy Deep Thoughts. From, yes. <laughs> yes. I, so I had like a little column, I think I called it um, Subconscious Goo. Um, and I, I wrote those style deep thought things. And so that's when I kind of got the bug of that. And then later in high school and college, um, I started reading a lot more literary fiction and kind of the postmodernists. And that really hammered me right in the head. What was it about, do you think, postmodernism that sort of like what was kind of engaging you in your experience maybe yeah, at that time? Yeah. I, th- I, when I read the postmodernists, like I, I know, for instance, uh, David Foster Wallace was one that that really stuck out to me because I loved the way that they combined um, the idea of using a, a lowbrow humor and like this highbrow type of uh, you know 
sentimentality with with like a literary fiction bend to it. You know, you could have a guy slip on a banana peel in one thing and then you're talking about, you know, a systems novel of life and, you know, the meaning of society and blah, blah, blah. So I loved that juxtaposition of having high and low. And, and I just thought the postmodernists did it really well. Like Don DeLillo is another one of my favorite authors and um, White Noise, I read that and it just, you know, exploded my brain. And, and um, So you were reading that in high school? Uh, I think that one, or maybe college. Or, I think that well, or, one. I, you're like yeah, in elementary read, school. Oh yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had uh, you, you know, and Tony Morrison, Tommy Choo Choo Train, and then I read Infinite Jest. No, <laughs> um, no. I think it was it was sometime either in like last year of high school, beginning of college, because you know I went to college and and I just weird environment as you know you're so out of sorts and so why not read something that makes you feel even more weird and out of sorts because <laughs> right. you you do connect to it and suddenly you're like oh hey this makes more sense so right things so, feel absurd or they feel surreal. oh yeah anytime yeah and i've throughout my entire life i've always felt very uh kind of absurd i, I love noticing absurd things and and things that just kind of jump out as being satiric or, or odd or weird. And so, you know, my whole life, I'm just like, well, I probably have a mental problem and just go on. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start reading, you know, different books and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Other people feel this same way and they've written about it so well. And so they fell in love with it then. And that, that's so it's. So I, you're finding your community, your people. Right. Yes. And, and, and that writers. Yes. And that got me. So in college, um, when I went to college, I knew I wanted to do creative writing, and so I became a creative writing major. Um, in undergrad, yeah. Michael. Okay. Yep, yep. And so I, uh, if, at Michigan State, and uh, so I, I started doing the writing, you know, short stories. But, you know, and also one, I, know, I remember another novel that really impacted me was um, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Like that really. And so, you know. That a, can change you. Oh, yeah. Yes. Have and, you recovered from the judge yet? Oh, no. <laughs> the character. I, Talk I, about character study. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, that that the judge just blew, blew my mind. I mean, and everything everything about that book was just so, you know, because he has such a biblical tone and it's so um, stark and yet beautiful. But, you know, it's like it's something about Southern Gothic, too, where you can just, you know, read it and uh, it. it you know, you you're, you fall in love with one sentence. It's so beautiful describing the desert or whatever. And then all of a sudden somebody's getting scalped and their heads are ripped off. And you're like, oh, well, that, that went south. But, uh, you know, so I, I really enjoyed that, um, which is an odd thing to say right after saying somebody <laughs> got their head ripped off. But, um, uh, yeah, so it was it was good because that kind of focused me more doing on literary fiction, you know, because I had, had not really written a lot of uh, humor after that. I had kind of written some more humor stuff and satire stuff, but I decided, you know, I want to focus on writing literary fiction. And so uh, I, you know, did that in college. And then, um, you know, I, I I thought about maybe going and doing an MFA um, to to do something like that, but I, I'm very poor. I have no money. And so I didn't have the confidence to, to try and get like any type of a... Uh, uh, scholarship or anything like that. So, uh, and of course, I graduated in 2008. So that was just like wham, boom, you know, recession. 
have fun, kids. And so, uh, yeah, that was, that was not a lot of fun. Quite bleak. Yeah. And so, you know, by the time I graduated, I, I, was, I was a dumb kid. I was just, I was aimless. And so I just, you know, I didn't even think like, oh, MFA, I guess I could. I could also go home and pick my nose, you know, so. Which guess, people do in Title yeah, 13. Yeah, exactly. There's yeah, like it's, a, yes, it's a scene. quite a detailed a of, scene there, there's Michael. Of, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff there happening in noses in Title 13. Yeah. So I, I uh, you can, you can probably picture where that came from but um but that but that's interesting because you 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 jokingly say mm-hmm. that you're you're aimless yet in undergrad you had enough gumption um and brassiness whatever to to choose creative writing as your major as your field mm-hmm. um I think it's just because I wasn't really good at anything else. <laughs> I, uh, I'm the I'm terrible at math. Uh, I like science, but I'm I'm not good at it. Um, in history, I love history, but you know, uh, there's that's the same kind of you know sort of a art degree. You know, what are you gonna? You can't really get a degree with English and or history. Same thing as getting an English degree. So I thought I guess I'll just throw a dart and got the English one. Um, but uh, yeah, and and so after I had. Uh, I guess the reason I didn't carry on with it right after that was, you know, uh, especially in the Detroit area, the recession hit and it was just like there there was nothing. There was no jobs. And I didn't have the foresight before I graduated to try and secure employment by the time I graduated. So, you know, I just ended up floating around and, you know, I was like, oh, well, this is no problem. I'll just become a novelist. I can, you know, I, what did I know? I thought you'd walk into a random house and just say like, this is where I come, right? You know, hey, they, you know, what do you need? So... Uh, so yeah, I just, I, I kind of rode around a little bit. I got a job doing sports writing. Um, and so, was um, that with, um, CBS Detroit? Okay. Yeah. And so I did, I did that. And, um, that was kind of fun because I mostly covered Michigan state sports and I've watched sports. So it seemed kind of easy enough to, to just put the coup together and make a little money. Um, but my main job was I, uh, 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 I ended up working for the state of Michigan, the Department of Agriculture, and I was hunting bees <laughs> because I, uh, I, I worked uh, as, to help the bees. Yes. To, or... well, well, actually, this so this was very specific. I say bees, but I mean the Cyrex wood wasp, which is an invasive species that came in, you know, from Asia, and it it kind of came in through the New York Harbor and has been gone through Pennsylvania and up through Canada and then into Michigan. And so we we hadn't really found it yet in Michigan. Well, this was back in 2008. Right. I don't know. It's probably destroyed everything by now. But oh. it's, a, it's a terrifying wasp. I mean, this thing, it's got, it's like a two inch long wasp and it has a three inch long ovipositor, which is the stinger. And so, like, if you see this thing, you die of a heart attack. And so, right. Well, it's... it doesn't sting humans, though. It, it doesn't use it. it what it does is it, does it uses, attack other like bees. It attacks other tree. It takes trees, and so it uses the ovipositor to lay its eggs inside of a tree, uh-huh. and then the eggs destroy the tree. You know, just it, it cuts off uh-huh. the you know ecology of the tree. The tree dies. It's spruce and pine trees, and um, so my job was to go all around Southeast Michigan. I got a little government car, and I just drove around and set these traps. And we were just trying to see where is it, where is it, and so for a summer and a half, you know, for a year and a half i uh drove around and did that and then 
the budget ran out. I got laid off. There was no money. You know, they, did you catch any of these wasps? Or, I personally not sure. did not, which they kept telling me is a good thing. They're like, good. You know, you didn't catch anything good. And right. then they, eventually, though, you kind of wanted to be like, I kind of want to catch something. And yeah. Feel like yeah. I'm, you know. Or you're like, maybe this is, am I using the right trap or yeah, bait? Or, or like, what am I do doing? they even like this? I don't even <laughs> think they like me. I think that was the thing. I bet there was other people who were setting traps and they got all in their traps. So I'm sure it's nothing personal, Michael. I'm I don't know. Sure. Bees and wasps don't like me. So, <laughs> um, Well, this is so interesting. I had no idea this was going to be something that, that, <laughs> that I, we could learn today. Yeah. I, I love it. Um, hungry bees. I am trying to think where we were before that. Okay. You know what? <laughs> um, well, so we were talking about your choice then. So you, you worked. So you went to work. Mm-hmm. You did this government job. And that's influencing mm-hmm. um, your main character here in Title mm-hmm. 13. Can you tell us a little bit how, what is this intersection? So, so yeah. So the way Title 13, 13 came to be was when I got laid off from that job, I, um, I, I, you know, I was really destitute. You know, I was just, I didn't know what to do. I had, you know, a little bit of savings, but I had, you know, no prospects. And it was even worse in 2009 when I got laid off. And so uh, certainly wasn't going to be able to do any writing other than the, the sports writing I was doing. Were you writing while you were yeah. also hunting the wasp? Yep. Good. Okay. Yeah. I All was right. doing the, the sports writing then too. And um, so I basically, what I did was I just, uh, I went one weekend to go and uh, visit Chicago. I'd never been, never really even thought about it. I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to go see this city. And I went and saw it and it was like, wow. And so I uh, I moved there. Uh, I just decided, I'm like, I'm I'm going to move there. I'm going to take my my small money I have and, and I'm going to move there. I didn't have a job. I, I, I went and found a uh, apartment in the Gold Coast, which, believe it or not, is expensive. I mean, with a name like Gold Coast, you would never think that, right? right. So uh, I, I lived in this like little box of an apartment that was, I think, like 250 square feet and um, cost about $1,000 a month. Is it the is it the model like for um, the, the main character's Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Because when I when I moved there, I I you know I went a few months. My money was just what savings I had was just disappearing, and I was looking for jobs, but I I couldn't find anything. I mean, you would think that you know a undergrad with a writing degree, everybody'd be clamoring for for that. It's uh, a good skill. <laughs> it's a good skill. Well, they'll be telling me that for the for the business and M- MBAs, but. Uh, so yeah, and then I, when I was on my last week, I had about ten dollars left, and um, Ooh, I, exciting! I, yeah, so nothing like ratcheting up the tension. Exactly, and then I got a job working for the federal government, and so I, I ended up working uh, in the Department of Commerce, and that is what influenced Title Thirteen, my time there. Well, let's take a short break, and when mm-hmm. we come back, do you, let's oh, pick yeah. up there. Sure. Today on the program, Michael Farrow is here. Title 13, his novel, out with Harvard Square Editions. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Steph Behind the Glass, and we'll be back. A big, big city and it's always the same Can never be too pretty Tell me your name, is it out of line? If I was to be bold and say, would you be mine? 
Cause I may be a beggar and you may be the queen And though I may be on a downer I'm still ready to dream Though it's three o'clock The time is just the time it takes for you to talk So if you're Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Michael A. Farrow is here. Title 13, a novel out with Harvard Square Editions. Um, so, you know what I was thinking? This is goofy, Michael, but I was like, because I love your, I love the feel of your book. Like, because oh. books are tactile, like oh, they're yeah. objects, oh, yeah. are artifacts, right? Um, but then with the publisher, I was like. I wish it could be square. I know that's so stupid to say because <laughs> I, I know it's not. They're not talking about, about that. that. It's like a place, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. But I was just like, it would be so cool. Also, I don't know if you ever have like. Well, when you have the next edition reprint, oh, yeah. maybe you could recommend the square because then yeah, I like that idea. Yeah. Be, I don't know. Okay, so when right before the break, mm-hmm. we were talking about your move to Chicago um, and how this also influenced the character mm-hmm. that you created. And so maybe you could talk about when did this, uh, when did your, the character emerge to you, and was that how the the novel started for you when you were drafting it? Yeah. So it, it healed came out which uh, and that's also i don't even the genesis of that name healed which is which is a unusual name uh when i had written the first uh draft of the manuscript um it was it was much longer than it is and it's already a long book so it is it is yeah yeah. Yeah, and so i um when i had first written the entire draft uh his name i think in the uh, original draft was dave and um, as you know, his last name is Brown. So it, it's, you know, Dave Brown. And I, I just kind of, I didn't like that name. And, and I, you know, I thought back to all of the, you know, great novels that I've loved. And so many of them have these kind of unique names that sort of stand out. And I remember when I was in Chicago, I don't know if it was just a false memory or what it was, but I was thinking back and I remember there's there's a little park somewhere in Chicago. I don't know if it's downtown or out in the neighborhood areas, but and I it was called like uh, there was a statue and it had the the Healed Memorial Fountain. And so I just thought that's an interesting name. I I healed and I remember seeing this and it had stuck in my head. And so I quickly did a search online of like, you know, well, is healed a name like what and um it um it it didn't really come back i think there there used to be healed like like in the 1700s you know back when it made more sense maybe it was a more antiquated name but um yeah so i thought well you know i might as well name him that it had the added benefit of um you know he's kind of a uh ragamuffin character and he's also you know um 
ignominious. And so I, I liked the idea that a nickname for him that people use in the book could be Heel. You know, like just his a, mother. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you know, Heel because it, it just makes me think of you know somebody's a heel. They're a you know a, not, not really a bad person, but you know they're, they're well, just kind of like a lousy person. But it you could know? also go both ways. Right, it could also be healing. Right, yeah, and something's so, broken. Right, and so um, yeah, I thought you know what this is a, a a different name, a better name. So I just kind of stuck with that. I got rid of the Dave. Um, Did that change then? Because because when you're with when you're drafting this and you've got a name that goes with a character, mm-hmm. you're picturing this person. Did mm-hmm. it change anything in your mind's eye? Um, not really. No. Um, I think it was just because uh, really? he was so pliable. He was so malleable in my mind that it just kind of uh, just gave was, him a new name. Because yeah. yeah. it seems like names are really important yeah, in there's, here. There's, there's like a lot all of, of them. Like you're having fun with it. Too, yes. Right? Yeah. I, I, one of the other novelists I really love is Thomas Pynchon. And so he, he always has fun with his names. And uh, so I thought, you know, why not? There's, there's some, <laughs> there's definitely, there's some normal names and there's some that are not. And the ones who don't have, the ones who have unusual names, there's usually reasons why I gave them like some type Ms. of flow hard. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and I know one of the guy's name is, is, uh, I think, is it Bobbert Bobbert? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So his, or Robert Bobbert or Bobbert, Bobbert <laughs> Robert, one of the two. Yeah. A combination of that. But yeah, just, just, um. And Leika Johnston. I mean, it goes on, like, at first, I was like, what is he up to here with all of this? Um, cause I actually haven't read Pynchon. So I, yeah. I um. Oh, Pynchon has, if you thought these are off the wall, Pynchon, Pynchon blow your head off. Yeah. Because that, yeah. He's got some weird ones. And, and. Just, well, then I shall avoid him. No. <laughs> Um, but okay, so then there was a moment when you were describing going back to this overlap because this is a work of fiction, mm-hmm. but you're you're drawing from um, yeah for your from your own life experience because right. when um, healed now I know how to say it um, <laughs> when he goes like early on in the book when he goes out to go for a run after he's had about five drinks mm-hmm. um, he goes like a block and then it sounds like he's on something like the Gold Coast yeah. or so so it, yeah. that's why I, went, yeah, I wondered definitely... if it was that was your map of exactly. your mapping onto it yeah. I just I sort of had him live where I lived, and that way I could know everything like where I was going. Because I, I, when I had written the book, um, so my I, I lived in Chicago for one year, and then because uh, I got laid off from that job, I have a bad tendency to get laid off with the uh, Department of Commerce. Yeah, you know because uh, I had worked in the uh, Census Bureau, and you know we we did the they did the 2010 decennial census, and then it was over. And uh, so it just it ended very abruptly. I thought I was going to be extended for like another six months. So I renewed my lease on my apartment. And then it was just like, you know, they came up and it's like, uh, you know, sorry. And so well, it gave you material. I got. Yeah. And so I, I kind of lingered in Chicago for a little bit longer. And then uh, my last day when I was in Chicago before I knew I was moving back uh, to Detroit, uh, I wrote the first page of Title Thirteen. I just, I just, I didn't know what I was writing at the time. I just wrote it out, and mind you, I, I hadn't written any fiction um, after I graduated from from college. I just stopped writing fiction. Um, <clears throat> I don't know why. I, I think I was just kind of disheartened by the whole recession area and and just uh, what had happened, and and so I hadn't written any fiction. So I wrote the first page, and then I just set it aside. And uh, I moved home, and uh, about two or three years later, um, I don't remember what 
oh, I had act, I had gone back to Chicago with my then girlfriend at the time, and uh, being back in Chicago after like three years, it was just like a whoa, wow. It's just something I don't know if it's that kind of writer sense, you know, sensibility, that sort of sentimentality. I just it just hit me, and I'm like, wait a minute. I thought I think I wrote something about this, and so I went back and found the file on my computer and opened it up, and then uh, just just kept writing and just kept it going from there, and then that that turned into the now. I don't even know that very first page. Yeah, Is it the, still the same first. It's page? still the exact same first page. Do you want page. to read it? Sure. All righty. Thirty-seven pages of highly classified Title Thirteen material were reported missing at the Chicago Regional Census Center on Wednesday morning. At 5 p.m. on Tuesday, after the employees of the Windy City's RCC had packed their sensitive data into large, regulated, heavyweight folders and filed them neatly away into their sturdy desks under lock and key, and after the keys had been put away into delicate key-sized numbered lock boxes and secured deep within the office, behind squinting eyes peering over simple shoulders, and sometime after the government-issued identification badges had been scanned by beeping units fastened to the wall near the single exit, not long before security personnel with no known names and scrupulously molded foreheads had disabled access to the floor, something had gone terribly and wrong and without anyone in the office seeming to notice a thing. It was troubling that 37 pages of Title 13 information could go missing from the CRCC with no one knowing how or why. Then again, troubling concerns have helped to keep our government funded throughout a number of domestic and international security incidents. Once even a single page of Title 13 paperwork is lost, it is not long before a ripple effect spreads among the populace targeting the lives of, the, of a select poor few and ushering in an enhanced form of absurd chaos only known within the likes of the United States federal government. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, and that's what you wrote. And I, I, I mean, yeah, to some form of that, I, I cleaned it up and, you know, whatever. But yeah, it was, it was pretty much that. And I don't know why I had written it like that. I mean, because I, I when I was working for the federal government, I was so obsessed with the idea of this Title 13, because that is a real thing. It uh, seems so, because if, if you were to continue reading, right. in that, like the next page or two... Yeah, you get more you detail on... some information about yeah, it. Yeah, and so Title 13 is a, is a real thing, and anybody who works for the Census Bureau has to be sworn to it, and you can never divulge any of the information you learn while working for the Census. So it was, you know, me being like a young, impressionable guy, I, I mean, you hear that, and suddenly you feel like really important. You're like, oh my God, I work for the government. Everybody's going to be trying to spy for me. Where's Russia? And then, you know, so you're, you're very... You're very spooked out, and so the and whole then time you write I, a novel. Yeah, and, about yeah. It. I'm sure I'm probably on some FBI watch list now, and I you know, <laughs> cars outside my house, helicopters flying. Drones. You've arrived. Oh yeah, and so ah, uh, the writer's life, Michael. Oh, it's so much fun. But yeah, and so I, I think the reason I had written that first page was, you know, I wasn't working at the 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 census bureau anymore and just that idea of Title Thirteen, just the idea of so much secrecy over such an unusual thing because i mean the census doesn't really collect stuff that that you know is thought of as being so intensely secretive and personal it's mostly just names and addresses and and whatnot so it was it was 
weird. It just it, it, that kind of juxtaposition of just being, you know, very odd and absurd, uh, absurd, and and yet it's just bureaucratic nonsense. You know what I mean? So right, but but it seems. Um at least how you're establishing the world within that that office, mm-hmm. it, it seems like it's a high tension oh, yeah. sort of place, and yeah, yeah, people disappear and um, yeah. I knew I knew that that the title thirteen would work very well as a uh, kind of a MacGuffin because I just wanted it to be a plot device that I could use to tell the more interesting story, at least to me, of, of Heald's degeneration, you know, his, his slip into alcoholism and, and all of his, the personal relationships and, and kind of his mental illness that he goes through. Um, but I, I wanted to be able to... To have that frame. Yeah, to have that frame and have that thread, something I could kind of just loosely sew throughout the story that would keep people reading, I guess, because, uh, you know, you never know if you're a writer, you're debut novel, like, I got to do something that, you know, I can't just go nuts, but... <laughs> Well, are you saying you can't, you, you didn't feel like you could go right to this, like, personal study of this person's de- degeneration? Yeah, because I, I wanted, I wanted, I absolutely wanted to have, like, a, a satire base for the entire novel. But I I wanted people to understand that um, that's sort of how these, these um, you know... Uh, explorations of of addiction stories or you know mental illness stories they kind of start like that you start somewhere else and then it's almost like you have to see how it becomes readily apparent you know uh, because people who know an alcoholic or they know somebody who's a drug addict or something like that it, it comes in it slips in slowly as and you start to realize these things with these people and so that's kind of what i wanted title 13 to be so sort of a representation of an addiction story on the whole you start to notice things and that's what you do when you're reading the first half of the novel is you're noticing these things and then it kind of degenerates and blows up and you're like oh i've been i've been seeing this all along but now i really see it and so and it seems like because uh, I, I wondered about that when you were writing this draft. Is that what you the first manuscript, the mm-hmm. first draft of the manuscript? Did you know that you wanted it to be focused on that? Then yeah, like, that was already something that you felt when you returned to this. Yeah, kind of I, page. I yeah, I wanted um, <clears throat> because I I, I didn't want to just write it as straight. <clears throat> Um, 100% sad, emotional stuff because, you know, uh, I, there is that part of me that, that does love humor and I love satire. And, and the great postmodernists really showed that, you know, you can tell a good story doing both. And so um, yeah, I thought if he's going to work for the federal government in the book, it's got to have satire and it's got to have – because more importantly too, I wanted it to be a novel about our modern times. There's a lot that they discuss about um, uh, – you know, healed reflects on society and how we've become so divisive and isolated. Let's let's, let's talk more about this, but take a short break and we'll come back sure. and we'll pick up there. Today on the program, Michael A. Farrow is here. Title 13, his novel out with Harvard Square Editions. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. We'll be back.
back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Michael A. Farrow is here. Title 13, a novel out this year with Harvard Square Editions. Hot off the press in February, right, mm-hmm. Michael? Yeah. And, and you've... you've um, You've you've did the you've done your launch at Literati, but you've mm-hmm. also got some um, uh, event. You're going to be at the Carytown Book Festival for us this summer. Yep. But you've got other event. You're heading to Chicago. T- yep. tomorrow. Or? Yeah, I'm going to Chicago uh, tomorrow to do the uh, the Printers Row. A lit fest, so that should be fun. So, folks listening, if you can, if you're heading to Chicago, if you're already there, you could go to the Printers Fest and see Michael. Yeah, you see me. And, I'll be. I'll have a, a hot dog in my pocket, and I'll be have a pizza hanging out of my mouth. Yeah, that'll be me. I'll so, be the slovenly si- one signing books, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think on your website it says manly handshake. Oh yes, if you come so. up and, and by, I will give you the manliest handshake. <laughs> That you can handle. <laughs> I'm not very good at giving handshakes. So. Total boasting. Um, thanks for thanks for picking the music uh, oh, yes. for today's program. Yeah, uh, the the choices I picked, I, I kind of wanted to uh, choose some books that or some uh, music that kind of reflected the tone, the different tones of of the book Title Thirteen. Because the first one, I believe, was um, the Fratelli's, uh, which was the song. Um, oh, I can't. I, I can't even think of the name, um, but um, so yeah, I, I it, it was about a young man who um, is just uh, out of sorts, walking around the city. Uh, uh, a whistle for the choir—that was the name of the yeah. And so uh, he's out of sorts, and he's kind of drinking, and he, a woman's kind of driving him crazy. And so I thought, well, that that worked in in Title Thirteen. This last one. Uh, uh, Telstar by the Tornadoes. I I don't know something about that song. I just like it's just very unusual. That 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 weird kind of you know Mellotron sound and yeah so, yeah that I really a like. really interesting energy to it. Yeah, and the last one which people will hear is um, uh, one that kind of reflects the more sadder, darker nature of Title Thirteen because it does kind of go down that sort of sad emotional road, and so that that one goes in there, and I think. There's another one too. Yeah, that that it, it, it it's off the wall. All of it's just up and down. And you also chose some songs for um, the site Large Hearted Boy. Too. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of fun because, and I think some of the ones were the same There's ones. Some overlap. Here. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was a lot of fun because you know I just I got to. Um, sort of think about how, uh, you know, the emotion is conveyed through music. And so um, that was that was a lot of fun. Yeah, there, there's different songs. And it, it all goes from the same sort of thing. There's absurd songs. I like listening to absurd songs that are really funny. You know, Monty Python. Yeah, you've, and, you've got a Monty Python. And Monty Python, Python coming up. And, and yeah, it's just... Yeah, that's not the sad one. That's right, no, one. that's not the sad one. That, <laughs> that definitely does not make me sad. But yeah... Just that idea of looking at life in a very absurd, funny, you know, don't worry about it. You know, because Monty Python, it's not the song I picked, but they have the song, um, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. And then I love that verse where they change, you know, the the lyrics to Always Look on the Bright Side of Death. (laughs) I just love how they do that, yeah. Okay, but back... You know what? Back to Title Thirteen, yes. <laughs> um, and how like what the the world of this can be, and and some of the emotion, like you were saying, as it like can be um, when healed go goes south, or is just having um, is grappling with alcoholism, with is grappling with um, mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so um, the 
government setting also is allowing us to think or I mean, if we're re- we're picking up a copy of Title 13 now, mm-hmm. we're thinking about what's happening in the present day. even. Right. Um, yeah. And you weren't you, you I mean, you've already written the book. It's not right. like you wrote it yesterday because right. like we we mentioned earlier in the program, like this is a this is a like a like it's a it's a big book. Like mm-hmm. and so it, it didn't just happen yesterday right, yeah. <laughs> or last year. Um, yeah. So, but you seem to maybe have a sense of something that was coming or or things that you saw in Chicago. Yeah. I don't know that you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was it was weird because I I wrote I wrote it. Um, I started writing it in 2013 and I finished it. I think on like New Year's Eve of 2014, going into 15. Um, and so, uh, you know, New Year's that, Eve. yeah, I, that was my, that was what I was doing. I was sitting at home finishing my novel and then yelling out the window. Everybody's like, happy new year. I'm like, I don't care. I did it. I finished my book. <laughs> Bagging so, your pots yeah, and for that, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I had finished it then and I don't, I don't think Donald Trump had announced yet or nothing like that. And, um, but I wrote the novel because when I was living in Chicago, uh, I noticed there were some very odd things happening. Um, one of them was the rise of the, the Tea Party. You know, I would be walking to work and there would just be all these Tea Party protests and rallies, you know, downtown out in front of the, you know, Daily Plaza and, um, you know, yelling and screaming about Obama is terrible. And, I, you know, it was so easy to kind of discount it and just be like, you know, OK, you're going to have disgruntled people, you know, matter left or right. And so um, but there was something different about it, especially when the birtherism stuff happened. You know, it's I started to um, I, like I said, I don't think I was prophetic or anything like that. I think I just. I, and the I, birtherism, that is when um, people were uh, accusing, accusing Obama of not not being born in, in, in the United States. And so I uh, I, I, I started to kind of I've always had like a, a dark inclination, a glass half empty, as my dad would like to say. And so I, I tend to look at the pessimistic side of things. And so when I see something like that happening, it kind of makes me feel like, well, maybe there's something wrong here. Um, and so I started writing uh, the novel, and I wanted to write it about this this sort of underbelly. I, I like the like a nefarious underbelly, something something sinister underneath of what we had going on. Because, like I said, when I wrote the book, we had Obama times were good, and I mean, I was happy. Everything was happening that was that we had wanted to happen, and yet I couldn't shake this bad feeling of you know. And I remember about. Um, I had finished the book and I had added so much satire into it, just absurd things about the government that I thought, you know, this is, everybody's going to know this is satire. This is all satire. And now that we have the current administration, it, it, it doesn't feel like satire anymore. There are parts that I wrote in there that I thought are so off the wall and it's, it's not at all. It's just, it's just seems like, well, that could be any one of Trump's you know, cabinet members, you know, doing something like that. And so I remember it was about a few weeks before the election. I think it was about two weeks before the election. And um, I was talking to one of my friends and I, you know, the belief was, we're just like, it can't happen. But I was talking to one of my friends and I I remember looking over and I go, I just got to tell you, I've got a terrible feeling that he's going to win. And it, we just now nah, you're crazy. You're just you're being pessimistic. You're, you're you know you're always you're always crazy about that stuff. And then it happened, and I I'd never ever felt worse about being wrong <laughs> or being or right. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, 
And so, yeah, a, a lot of the stuff that happened in in the uh, the book, I never would have thought would make even. It, it was meant to be funny. It was meant to be satire. So, can you give an example of that? <laughs> yeah, like there's um, just the way that people uh, kind of talk, you know, because there there is, you know, one of the things that that the Trump administration has changed about politics is the idea of how a um, uh, you know, presidential attitude and the way government attitude and just the way, um, you know, people compose themselves. And uh, so a lot of the characters in in in, in uh, positions of power in, in the book Title 13 are just very, you know, uh, outspoken and very loud and crude and in and, and very odd and funny and satiric ways. And, uh, you know, you just you don't think about that as being the case, especially in like a government office, because everything is so well regulated and bureaucratic, you know. And now, you know, you you, you watch anything on the news and, and it just it seems more like that's how it's become. Uh, so, yeah, I. <laughs> so when you because we were also talking about how so title 13 feels like it's a timely mm-hmm. novel right mm-hmm. so how could you t- and this and we also mentioned earlier this is your debut novel mm-hmm. so this is so what was it like for you after you've you've got the manuscript you're finding an agent you're shopping it or what could you talk a little bit about that Michael? Yeah. what was your experience that was terrible that was the worst <laughs> it was uh um I, I remember, so um, I had written the manuscript, and I had no, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I still don't have any idea what I'm doing, but I I, I definitely had no idea then. Uh, I, I pretty much just, you know, you have that pie in, in the sky idea that you know you can just walk anywhere, you go into some place, and just say, you know, a publisher, and hey, here's my book. You want this, right? You know, and. No, no, nobody does. And so, um, what I what I realized I had to do was I started um, making connections with just a lot of the uh, uh, literary community in Ann Arbor, and even through um, social media. You know, just connecting with people, whether they be publishers or, or or authors or just reviewers or avid readers. Everybody, you know, talk to everybody because you will always find. I mean, even if it's not like a quid pro quo, you don't have to. You know, you do this for me, I'll do this for you. It's just cool to talk to these people because you realize that everybody can be like-minded like that. And I'm definitely a very isolated, solitary person. When I was writing this book, I I didn't leave my house. And I, I don't leave my house a lot anyways. But <laughs> I, I never really got out of the house. And um, so this has been good. It's been like, you know, I could shave my beard a little bit, brush the crumbs out of my hair and, you know. So, uh, but, but that was also so that was good. Like in one way, that yeah. enabled you to actually get through the pages to yeah. to have a. It sounds like you have a, a like a process that yeah. you adhere to. Yeah. Um. And so, but then, so what was the breakthrough moment then, Michael? What happened? Like, how did you get? Like, what happened with Harvard Square Edition? Okay. Then? So yeah. So um, what I had done was uh, now all the advice I received. People said, you know, uh, just find presses that you like, read their books. If they're good, contact them, you know? And so uh, I ended up reaching out to, I had a spreadsheet. I think it was over a hundred, over a hundred publishers I had sent the manuscript to. And um, through it all, I received like 50, 60 rejections. The rest, you know, a bunch I didn't hear from. And um, 
I I had I had read one of the books from Harvard Square Editions, so a really good book that they had had uh, by an author named S. Lee, just S. Period L. I. And uh, the book was Transoceanic Lights, and it had won the uh, National Book Awards Five Under Thirty Five Award. So I was like, okay, this press is on to something, and. Uh, so it had that same kind of social message because, you know, Title 13, I want to try and tell it's a satire, it's sad, it's about addiction, but it has a social message for the times that we're in right now. And so I knew like, okay, well, Harvard Square likes that. And so um, I ended up sending them the manuscript and I didn't hear anything. And then, uh, which wasn't unusual. Um, and then uh, months went by, I got a couple of acceptances from other presses, um, but there, there was some odd things in the contracts and um, some some unusual things that I didn't really feel comfortable. I sent it to my lawyer and he was just kind of like, eh, I don't know about this. And so, um, huh. yeah, we ended up, uh, after like a long back and forth, we, we just kind of went separate ways and I was devastated. I thought, oh, I'm never... This is never going to happen. I'm just going to go home and sit in my closet and, you know, just. <laughs> but, so, but then. But, yeah, so then I ended up, um, uh, this would have been like nine months or ten months after I had first sent the manuscript to Harvard Square. And um, I think there was a, like four or five other acceptances, but uh, there was. Some something. So holding. you were hearing good news, like you were. Yeah, getting, the, that's the, great. But I, for every acceptance I got, you got to remember, I got probably fifteen rejections. It was a ton of rejections, and so um, I ended up uh, after after things went really south with the one publisher. I was really sad and disappointed. Uh, I just reached out to Hartford Square. I think I just sent them an email and just said, you know, I'm just curious. Are you interested in this? It's been like nine, ten months. Right. And I've had um, these responses. You probably said I've I didn't got... even say that. Oh, I just okay. I just <laughs> was like so dejected. I just said like oh, I'm just oh, just no. curious. If you wanna, you know, just tell me no or whatever. I you know, and so um they wrote me back. Well like, you write very nice letters, Michael, oh, I have to say. Oh thank you. Um I uh but I, so but they I, wrote you back. And... They wrote me back the next day and they said, um uh, you know, uh we love it. They said, we, we love it. We've been reading it. And um, they even pinpointed little uh, sections of the book. You know, they'd say, like, on page, blah, 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 we like this. On we have a question about on page, blah. So it, it was so heartwarming to hear because I'm like, wow, they really read, they read the entire manuscript. They liked it. And so, you know, they sent me a contract. And I remember I, I, I told my lawyer, I said, like, unless there is – something absolutely like, if i have to give a kidney that's fine both kidneys no <laughs> one kidney that's fine so i'm like i'm signing this thing and so i i i got it and signed and and it's been a, a great experience yeah it's been fun let's take a short break and then we'll come back to talk more and many congratulations oh, thank michael. you today on the program michael a farrow is here his um his novel title 13 out with harvard square editions well done harvard square editions i'm tietzel you've got living writers we'll be back Why are we here? What's life all about? Is God really real? Or is there some doubt? Well, tonight we're going to sort it all out. For tonight, it's the meaning of life. What's the point of all these hoax? Is it the chicken and the egg time? Are we just you? Perhaps we're just one of God. 
Is life just a game where we make up the rules while we're searching for something to say? Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Michael A. Farrow is here. Title 13, a novel um, out this year with Harvard Square Editions. Um, and so we've been we've been talking a lot about the book. We've been um, but there's more to say, obviously. Uh, um and so there's also, we've been talking about the humor layers in it. Like there's a few pages where I, I've written ha at the side of it in the line and, and the, and the, the rhythm of how the, the lines are, are moving and working. Um, and it's also, and it's also because it's built like on the back to always look like, how are they going to categorize? And it's literary mm-hmm. fiction suspense. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit, because we haven't talked about the suspense part of it and mm-hmm. building that. Right. How, yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, I, I at first I was kind of surprised that, you know, um, the publisher had just kind of just added that suspense. And um, I said, well, oh, you know, what's that? And obviously, you know, it, it helps with marketing. But then I really sat down and thought about it. I'm like, yeah, there are some very suspenseful elements in the book. Um, and that was the odd thing when I was writing it. I didn't even really consider that, you know. It just kind of felt like the natural flow of the story was to kind of just be kind of a suspenseful thing. And some of the suspense is playful. It's it's like a double-meaning suspense in sort of that kind of satiric, absurd way. Um, like, for example, with the relationship with Jan? Yeah, Janice, like, or, you know, yeah, or, or, like, yeah, there's, like, there's relationships in the, in the, uh, in the novel where, uh, you know, he, it, it's just, it helps propel the story. And, uh, so there's, there's some layers of suspense in there, you know, in, and the idea of ending a chapter with something that makes you want to turn the page and read to the next chapter, you know, if you end the chapter with, and then they all went to sleep and, you know, you're not going to turn the page. So, um, so you're very conscious of that yeah, when, when you're when you're drafting or when, maybe when you're going back through in the revision oh, process. Oh yeah, in the revision process. To shape yeah. It. Yeah, in the revision process. Um when I when I had first written um the first manuscript I think it was like 135,000 words, which would have been just way I would have been 700 800 pages. So part of editing that all down was also making it more cohesive and and uh making it you know flow better and so adding elements were were you able to do that michael were you able to see those or what did harvard square editions help with some oh my editor there was awesome absolutely awesome she was just brilliant and the the great thing was she had the same sense of humor that i do because i was really nervous i thought i don't know if they're gonna get this because some of the humor is uh odd and off the wall um and so she she got my sense of humor so that that worked out nicely um but um yeah so the 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 idea of it being a suspense um yeah there's definitely elements elements of suspense especially because uh you're wondering what's going to happen to heal because you know as he's getting it's more apparent just how sick he is i don't say he's getting more sick almost because the, the whole course of the, the novel is only one week you know that's the time span of the entire novel so he's pretty much as sick as he's going to get but when you first meet him and right. he has those drinks but by the well because well, we can't really say anything about the end right okay right yeah i think i think yeah because <laughs> then then we'd really be up the creek right yes. and be like thanks a lot for this does say suspense on it guys okay. mm-hmm. but no it, it, it's 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 definitely 
the suspense is you're seeing more and more of how deeply he is submerged into this world of sorrow and misery and drinking and alcoholism and mental illness. And so um, the suspense is wondering, you know, can he get through it? Will he get through it? How will he get through it? So, And I guess with what you also were talking about a bit earlier in the program with the frame of Title 13 yes. as well, having that being like, where are these 37 pages? Right. And yes. What's, uh, you know, in, you know, in jeopardy with it being gone or what's happening in mm-hmm. this place? So there's that. Yeah. And it's, it's the title well. of the book is Title 13. So I expect people to want to know, you know, the thread of what happens to the title. Thir- where is it? Where does it go? And so, um, yeah. Okay. So, and we don't have too much time left, but I would, um, you, you are born and raised in Detroit. Yes. Just outside um, of, just outside of Detroit. Oh, where? Uh, in Sterling Heights. Oh. Yeah, not so not within the city limits, but yeah, just north. Of, that's the north side of Detroit. Yeah. And and you really and and it seems like you. It was important for you to go to school in Michigan. It seems like too, and to be. And like, it, well, it was it cheaper like, that way too. And smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, but it feels like also, and in your bio that we read at the top of the program, it's mm-hmm. like you're talking about being a Midwestern, oh yeah, writer, yes. and you've lived in many places in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So, what does it mean, like being from this area of Michigan, then th- as well? Yeah, I think I think being from the Detroit area and being a Midwesterner in general, especially these days, is is much more different than it has been in the past. It's been so easy to look at the Midwest and Detroit as just flyover states or, you know, Detroit always being in the news with all the the ruin porn and all the, you know, devastation and uh, just thundering that over and over and over. It's just been so annoying. And I think one of the, uh, if you want to pull some kind of positive aspect out of the 2016 election is that, you know, people I think are starting to realize around the country that the Midwest has a voice and the Midwest can get angry. The Midwest is passionate. It's emotional. It's reactive. And so, uh, and, you know, that's very apparent in Detroit more than ever. And so I, I really wanted to tell this story because in Title 13 is set in Chicago and a lot of it talks about Chicago, but there but, is... But Heald returns to Detroit, to Detroit with his yes. grandmother. He, he is, does. Yes, he goes to visit well. his, his sick grandmother and it's just like all this wave of emotions hit him as he goes back into Detroit because, you know, he had moved away from Detroit right when it was at its lowest. It's it's kind of the same way you'd feel as if you left a person when they're at their sickest moment. And so, you know, he, he contemplates that. A lot of the book is, of course, you know, his ruminations and just things he's thinking about. And he thinks a lot about Detroit and its place in in the country and how it's going to change. And so I, I think I don't think I'll ever be any different type of a writer other than a Midwestern writer. I think it's so interesting to be a Midwesterner. And, you know, if the rest of the country doesn't all get it right now, they will because, you know, I think the sights are kind of being turned on us right now, which is which is good. I mean, like I said, it's it's kind of a, you know, double edged sword the way it happened. But um, uh, I think it's I think it's been uh, really great to have all this Midwestern literature coming out. You know, people are starting to read more about people from the Midwest and reading our stories, you know, instead of everybody just thinking we're, we're farmers or if you're from Detroit, you're, you're a criminal or, you know, drug dealers or something, you know, it's, it's so much nicer to, to talk about the other people in the Midwest. So that's been, that's been cool. I like that aspect of, of being Midwestern. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. That end. And it seems like you're very proud of it. Oh, um, yeah. From from like just seeing, hearing what you're saying. My arms are waving around. I'm very, very passionate. (laughs) Italian screaming. (laughs) Um, And and so and really briefly uh, before we go. um, So you have you have a dog, Ruben, who um, is now on the Living Writers Instagram um, with a copy of your book. Um, And and it seems like from going to your website, which, as as I briefly mentioned earlier, is is really like it's an Michael A. Farrow, um, dot com. Go, oh, huh. go ahead to it. It's, it's got everything. And you, and you've, um, from your, your CBS Detroit, uh, like things, you, you write music oh, yes, writing, my, uh, mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. My, my old, uh, stuff that I used to write, the journalism kind of stuff I used to write. Yeah. And, um, and pictures of you with a beagle, which is your family's beagle. Yes. My mom, my mom and dad's beagle. Yeah. Cooper. Um, <laughs> Cooper. Cooper. Um, and so, but you also have Ruben then as your, yes. like, is, so is he your first reader? Like ever, so oh yeah, like he's a... my first everything. Yeah, I, I bounce everything off of him, and yeah, he's he, he you know everything that happens to me. I live alone with Ruben, and so yeah, he he gets the best and worst of me. It's it's reciprocal though, so you know we take care of each other. Well, he seems pretty proud of Title Thirteen. Well, he he is because I forced him to be. Oh, okay. <laughs> But, um, it, you know, it's, uh, yeah, he's, he's an interesting dog. He has all these, all these ailments. Um, he's he nail disorders and separation anxiety. And, um, cause he's a coonhound beagle mix. Yeah. He's coonhound beagle and foxhound. He's got, he's all these different. Yeah. And he's a rescue. So I got him from South Carolina. And, uh, so yeah, it's, it was like an adventure getting him here. And, um, so, uh, yeah, now that he's here, uh, you know, I love dogs more than anything in the world. A lot of times, I, I mean, it's, it's scary to say, but I, li- I sometimes like dogs more than people. I think that's okay to say. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, when, when it comes to dogs, um, and there's a dog character in the book. Yes, yeah, the dog um, uh, is is uh, an integral part of Heald's understanding of the universe and his place in it and the meaning of what it is to be a human compared to not human. Um, but yeah, so my dog constantly reminds me that, uh, yeah, I'm an unusual human and, uh, he's an unusual dog. So, um, you know, yeah. He, and he sleeps on the bed with me and, you know, he, he, uh, yeah, need him around. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, um, Michael, for talking thank today. You so and, much. and I know folks can head to your website, um, michaelafarrow.com, to go and check out where you're going to be because you're going to be around Michigan and mm-hmm. in the Midwest and later this summer at the Carytown Book Festival mm-hmm. as well. Um, so thanks so much for talking oh, with thank me. Thank you today. so much. It's um, a pleasure. We'll come back anytime. Awesome. I'd <laughs> um, love to. You've been listening to Living Writers today on the program, Michael A. Farrow, his novel, out with Harvard Square Editions, Title 13. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening. We've got, oh, Lillian Lee next week. Um, Thanks for listening. Until next time. comes of it love it love it let go of it love comes from it we're not of this world for
darkness when starvation falls upon us day light told me Welcome to another edition of Move Your Ass, summertime fitness every Thursday night from 6 to 6.30. My name is Mars. My turn tonight at 6.01. Thanks again to T for a very fine uh, Living Writers show that's also on Thursdays. We want you to have fun and even follow along with our celebrity trainers on Move Your Ass. But this show is for entertainment purposes only, and we trust that you will consult your personal health care provider before starting a serious exercise program. Grace Jones is our motivator here at the top of the hour. Brand 